0: Ah, oh, Hey, everybody. It is Robin Warner, but Chris, guess what? What's that, Robin? It's kind of exciting. We, we have a couple of ads to read, so you haven't heard the Formula One drive-by or the intro music because right at the top of the show, I get to read an ad, and the ad even has a promotion in it. Oh, what for? Well, with it, it's so glad you asked. For a noticeably smoother shave, join Dollar Shave Club today. The Dollar Shave Club Starter Kit includes razors, prep scrub, shave butter, and post-shave dew, all for just $9 on your first box. That's right, just $9. And the best part? What's that? Your box gets delivered straight to your door with free shipping. See why millions trust Dollar Shave Club for all their shaving and grooming needs. Get shaving and grooming products when you need it. Don't wait. Get the ultimate shave starter kit from Dollar Shave Club today for just $9. This offer is limited to U.S. residents only. Just go to dollarshaveclub.com slash FWCars. That is dollarshaveclub.com slash FWCars. Listen, sometimes there's more than your face to keep clean. You know, you have to keep your entire body clean and well-groomed and well-kept. And some parts of your body are talked about less often than other parts of your body. And Chris, that's why I'm so happy to tell you about Ballsy. They make men's products for grooming not your face <laughs> the other parts below the belt above the knees <laughs> look man we can be squeamish about this but the point is is that that can be a sweaty messy area around there and ballsy has products to help keep that stuff clean and orderly which is good right i mean that's good i mean that's just objectively good
1: for the uh, for the women out there it is yeah absolutely
0: uh, for everyone chris for everyone <laughs> And there's several ballsy products. Okay, they have trimmers, but not just trimmers. They've also got, and I kid you not here, ball wash,
1: sack spray, and more. Do you think it would be suitable, Robin, for you know someone who races cars and gets uh, you know pretty uh, pretty hot and sweaty behind the wheel?
0: Three-layer racing suit? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think that's an excellent point. And that's good because Balzi is only made from the good stuff like essential oils and plant extracts. No sulfates, no parabens, synthetic dyes, and of course, no testing on animals. And they've got this thing called the Sac Pack. So when in doubt, go for it all. The Sac Pack is the ultimate trifecta of products specifically formulated to take care of that very important area. And Chris, Chris, it gets better. Ask
1: me how it gets better. (laughs) How on earth can it get better, Robin?
0: (laughs) Well, you can go to BallWash.com and take their quiz to get a customized system tailored to your personal satisfaction. Moreover, all the Ballsy products are made in the U.S. and always will be. It could be the perfect gift for anyone, any time of the year, or just a gift to yourself. And... With over 200,000 satisfied customers and a 30-day money-back guarantee, you got to give Ballsy a try. So, Chris, I got to tell you, uh, Ballsy sent me some stuff to try out, and, you know, they're having fun here, but it is legitimately good stuff. The trimmer offers you a lot of different settings to uh, play around and get it, like, just how you want it, and the the products work really well, and I do genuinely like the fact that it does not have – You know, a lot of the sulfates and other ingredients that you'd see in some other stuff. So, it is good, good stuff. Right now, if you go to BallWash.com slash FWCars and put in the promo code FWCars, you will receive 20% off your order of $50 or more. That's 20% off when you go to BallWash.com slash FWCars and put in the promo code FWCars. Oh, Chris, exciting times. Exciting times in this day and age.
1: And there was an IndyCar race at the weekend, Robin. Was there?
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 329 of the Fun With Cars Motorsports Podcast, or episode 16 of 2022. I'm Robin Warner, and today I'm joined by the man who missed afternoon tea and we will instead enjoy an evening gnt christopher roche hey chris hey robin a gnt sounds like a great idea chris i'm jealous
1: yeah i had uh, quite a few at the weekend actually they're very delicious i do recommend them <laughs>
0: <laughs> well i recommend quite a few more it is tuesday evening june 7th and chris and i are going to talk about the detroit grand prix indy car race and i have Two interviews to share, one with now full-time IndyCar driver, ovals and all, Romain Grosjean. Yes, our former Formula One French slash Swiss racing driver is now a full-time IndyCar driver with uh, Andretti Autosport. And I had a nice chat with him over the weekend, as well as a conversation with the vice president of Honda Performance Development, which is the company behind Honda Racing Engines for IndyCar and IMSA. Kelvin Fu. There is so much to talk about with the IndyCar race. This was the final, the final Detroit Grand Prix to be held on Belle Isle, which is an island just a few miles north of downtown Detroit. Um, next year, the race is going to be on the city streets of downtown Detroit. So it is moving off the island into downtown Detroit, and it's going to be just a whole new world. It's going to be not an exact replica, but a repeat of the Formula One race that occurred there in the late '80s, and uh, that's where IndyCar got that start as well before it moved to Belle Isle in the first place in the early '90s. So it was just a fantastic kind of uh, swan song for this uh, Belle Isle
1: race. Yep, and uh, and it was a darn fine race too. In pre- previous years, we've had uh, you know double headers in Detroit. We've had the the jewel in detroit so a race on saturday and a race on sunday this this weekend didn't follow that format with just a single race on the sunday um, but i actually think it was a little bit better for it i thought the race was more compelling uh and uh, good value for money
0: i completely agree with that exact sentiment as well as it i think that it made a lot more sense for the IMSA race. So IMSA was also in Detroit for the same weekend. Not every class. The GT3 pro cars, the GTD pro class was not there. And the LMP2s were not there, But or the LMP3s. But the DPIs and the GT, GTD cars were also in Detroit race. And so they were the one and only Saturday feature race. And that just made a lot more sense. You had a feature race on Saturday. That was IMSA. They put on a great show. Then you had a feature race on Sunday. That was IndyCar. They put on a great show. And this is an excellent time to let you guys know that I'm going to put together a separate podcast about the IMSA race in a few days' time. And that's because I also got a chance to interview um, several IMSA drivers and uh, learn some interesting insights from them as well. So uh, they deserve their own show just like they deserve their own day at the Detroit Grand Prix. But uh, today we'll focus on IndyCar and we'll focus on the race on Sunday, which had a Chevrolet on pole position and a Honda-powered car right behind it.
1: Yes, yeah, so qualifying was quite interesting on Saturday, wasn't it? Because um, I think uh, the man, one of the men you interviewed, uh, Romain Grosjean, uh, shunted, which caused a little bit uh, of disruption uh, to the qualifying. And uh, And it was not a fender bender, (laughs) this shunt. (laughs) Right. And we had a a slightly different uh, fast six than than maybe you might have expected uh, based on the times prior to the crash. So, um, yeah, I don't think many people thought that Newgarden was was likely to get pole, but he did.
0: Yes, he did. And it was uh, a team Penske driver putting a Chevrolet on pole. And the full name of the race is the Chevrolet Detroit Grand Prix. And the uh, the owner of the event is Roger Penske. So <laughs> all of that seemed very appropriate. But it was, in fact, um, Takuma Sato in a Honda-powered car that was right behind him. Meanwhile, you had guys like Alexander Rossi, Colton Herta, Scott Dixon, who were a little bit farther down the grid but looked to be on putting in faster laps when that Roman... Grosjean crash occurred during qualifying.
1: Exactly. So you could, you could argue that the, the, the order, although, of course, Joseph is a, is a very strong driver and not uh, unaccustomed to being at the front, uh, you could say that the order was a little bit maybe jumbled. And so, you know, the promise was that we'd have a, we'd have a decent race. And uh, that, that is exactly what we got.
0: But I talked to Roman Grosjean before any of this happened. I talked to him Friday morning before first practice of the IndyCar race, and my conversation with him kind of focused on his transition from being road and street course only part-time driver to full-time IndyCar driver, and he was as gracious as always, so let me play that for you right now. Roman Garjan, great for you to spend the time talking with us. A lot's changed in the year since we spoke last. Um, When I talked to you, you were with Dale Cohen Racing, only doing road courses, and here we are at Detroit again. This time you're with Andretti Autosport, I mean, clearly. <laughs> Full season, ovals, the whole thing. So how's this transition to being a full-time IndyCar driver been for you?
2: Pretty good, honestly, yes. Uh, there's a lot changed in, uh, in a year and a half. Uh, I had a really good season with Dale Con Racing last year. Um, skipped the ovals for a bit and then came to Gateway Luis, to do the last one of the season. Uh, kind of liked it. Uh, got the opportunity and the chance to sign with Andretti, uh, driving the DHL number 28 Honda car. Uh, did my first Indy 500. Had my first oval crash as well. Uh, it's not <laughs> as painful as I think, thought it was going to be. So uh, I was the positive the 500. Uh, and yeah, just you know, um, going along and, and trying to win races.
0: Well, you've gotten close this season already. You had uh, a top five, and then also you were on the podium at Long Beach. But those are road and street courses, and you know those things. I'm really curious what the experience was like at Texas.
2: It's short. I mean, both ovals this year only did 50% of the race. Uh, in, in Texas, sadly, we, uh, we had a mechanical failure halfway through the race, and in uh, and the 500, uh, I crashed. So overall is, is getting—I'm I'm starting to like it more and more, really. Uh, I— Initially, wasn't a huge fan of it and didn't really understand most of it, but after spending a month in Indy and seeing the, the crowd at the Indy 500 and the, the event, uh, I wish we were doing it again and we'd do it better. So, uh, yes, I, I really started to enjoy the ovals. Uh, it's very different, but uh, it's good racing. It's uh, it's a lot of specific things that you need to get right, but I'm um, I was very excited to do my first 500. Uh, obviously, very disappointed with the way we we ended, but also very glad that I got to uh, experience uh, 300 plus thousand spectators uh, on the grandstand.
0: It's it's really a unique event, the Indy 500. You know, there's there's big racing events throughout the world. Um, one of the biggest that I can think of is 24 Hours of Le Mans, and the Indianapolis 500 is kind of like. Compacting the 24 hours of Le Mans into one day, you know, it's kind of just everything happens on that one Sunday morning and early afternoon. It's kind yeah, of crazy.
2: Very similar events, just in the way it works. You know, it's a it's a complete week between the qualifying and then the week and the parade, and that's, yeah. you get that exact same thing in Le Mans.
0: Yeah. So yeah.
2: I had the experience from 2010, and then yes, Le Mans is about 24 hours, whereas the 500 is about three to four hours uh, on Sundays. So it, it is a bit different. Uh, it is also a smaller track, right? Le Mans is 12 kilometers, Indy is 4, 2.5 <laughs> miles, or it's going to be 8, maybe? 7.5, 8. Uh, yeah. so, so it's quite different.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, uh, Le over 8, that's right. Um, the experience is one thing, but what about the actual driving? I mean, what has been the hardest thing to kind of, like, change about your driving to adapt to oval racing versus road course racing? I
2: think mean, there's a few specific on oval racing that you you need to get but the driving is, is really the hard part is to understand what the car needs to do or not to do because obviously on the road course you can try to push the limit and if you spin you spin it's not a big deal on oval when you spin it's it's a bigger deal uh, it's, a, it's a bigger problem so it's just trying to find what the limit is and what the car needs to be doing to be good um, as I say month of May we we struggled really, every time it was warm, we, we struggled with the car. Suddenly on race day, it was warm, so we didn't have a good car. But when it was cool, it was good. So when the car is good, it's really fun. When the car is not so good, it gets a little bit hairy.
0: Yeah, yeah. And then there's that difference between how the car feels alone on the oval and then how it feels in traffic. And that can play that can play mind games as well, can't it?
2: Yeah, it's, it's interesting to see how the car reacts if you are behind on your own, behind one car, two cars, or 10 cars, and that's going to change. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, the, the few days we had a good car, it changes by a small amount, but no big. When, when the car is, is not great, then it changes a lot, but that's normally good, not a good sign that your car is behaving the way should.
0: <laughs> right, right. Now, um, I've read in the past that the, the hardest thing to wrap your head around if you come from a road racing background is corner entry. That you, that you carry speed into an oval corner differently than you do a road course corner. Would you say that's true, or is that just different driving styles playing out?
2: No, I think it's different driving style. I think uh, I mean the way you carry the speed is just to, what the car is capable of doing. Um, you no, know, say it's just more the lift off of a throttle, how to save fuel, or to get a run, or to time it, rather than just driving, you know, driving on its own, if, especially in the 500, it's flat out. Um, gateway uh, is a bit different uh, Iowa is going to be a bit different but the super yeah. speedway you normally flat on your own so it's, it's just finding finding where the car needs to be to go fast in qualifying and then finding where the car needs to be in a race so you, you're competitive
0: So you're now going to all these road courses again for the second time, you've got some experience you're with one of the big teams you've got two experienced teammates in Colton Herta and Alexander Rossi and Rossi also shares a bit of Formula 1 experience, obviously less than you, Um, how is it just like adapting to US racing and you know for the first time as a full-time driver?
2: Um, I love US racing, it's great fun, I love being here with the fans, with the team, Uh, it's just a good good atmosphere, Uh, I'm having a a very good time. I'm excited for the, the run that we're going to have now, you know, there's so many races coming, uh, which is great. Uh, the month of May wasn't kind to me, between the 500 where we retired and, and the GMR Grand Prix where we should have been at least on the podium.
0: That, up the, the weather there was nuts. Yeah. I mean,
2: it, was it was good. I mean, I liked it. I liked the rain. It was yeah. fast. I liked the drying conditions. So we were fast, but we just we just haven't been able to put it all together. So, you know, fine tunings, a new team, new communication, we, we're getting there. So. I think I'm excited to be in Detroit. I'm excited that we go to Rhode America after. Uh, it's going to be Iowa. It's going to be back to Indianapolis, uh, the, the Campy, uh Laguna Seca. Some really good races out there. So just take it day by day and see how it, how it goes.
0: What about the family side of this? I mean, you're a family man, wife, three kids, and family was always important to you. It seemed like last year you kept much of your life in France. Um, and then came to race here. Now that you're a full-time driver, is, is there more permanence in the United States for not just you, but your family?
2: Yeah, yeah. We all moved to Miami, so we, we live in Miami with my family. So that makes the travel much easier, uh, rather than crossing the Atlantic. I just have to go in and out, you know, Miami or Florida, to to the races. Uh, my family is very happy down there. The weather has been outstanding. We, we were lucky to find a good house and uh, just a good school as well for the kids. So. Everyone is happy and like come to the races and just being able to enjoy my time.
0: And so, is it, is it is that a permanent residence now, or is that when the season's over you will still head no, back? No, your... for now we stay in Florida. Oh, that's amazing. So, and and your kids are taken to the United States. Well, then, yes, they love it. Okay, most important question for any French slash Swiss man the food. How are you adapting to the American food? It's a different cuisine here.
2: Now, well, you know, yes, we have that idea that American cuisine is just fast food and, and burgers, but actually when you start digging a little bit, there's some really good restaurant, really good chef, really good recipes. Um, I love it. I, I mean, in Florida, you get all the South American culture and European culture, and then when you when you actually travel the country, there's some very good, uh, good stuff, and, and good food, and good barbecues, and good Burgers, you know, a burger is not necessarily a bad thing. No. If the bun is done properly <laughs> and it's a good piece of meat and, and well cooked and uh, with a nice cheese maybe on it, it just and, and, and a barbecue sauce, homemade barbecue sauce, something like that, it's pretty good.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
2: so actually, I'm enjoying
0: it. Oh well, that's that's great to hear. Um, so your kids, uh, if you don't mind me asking, how old are your kids?
2: Uh, they're nine, seven, and five.
0: Okay. So if you if you ask, racing becomes long term. They're gonna lose their French accent. Are you okay with that?
2: They already have the American accent when they speak English, <laughs> which, is, uh, which is very impressive. Uh, but it, we, we're gonna speak French at home. So they're still uh, gonna be French. But they're still gonna be uh, into, uh, into, you know, we. That's a mother language, but I'm very uh, very happy that they can learn uh, English the way they do and, and probably Spanish in Florida as well. So
0: Of course, it's such, yeah, Florida uh, such especially. a great experience. Yeah, yeah. And um, it, it's great that you're full time. You're one of the just engaging best drivers to follow out in IndyCar it's really good and then IndyCar's got a lot of great momentum there's new engines coming in the near future so it's an exciting time to be in the sport and I hope you feel the same way
2: yeah it is it is I mean uh, IndyCar's got great great racing very talented drivers fierce competition uh, and good fun off the track
0: has anyone ever confused you for Ryan Hunter Ray in your DHL no no okay very good. Well, Roman Grosjean, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you. And uh, good luck this weekend in Detroit. Merci. Merci. Always appreciate talking with Roman. He always has good answers, and it's just so fascinating to see him fully embrace IndyCar racing, and that was how I officially started my uh, IndyCar Detroit weekend on Friday morning, so uh, it was a great way to start the day.
1: Yeah, and it's worth talking a little bit about the Friday at the Detroit Grand Prix. I don't know if it's something you're going to get continue in, in future years but i certainly hope they do they they basically call it a free day uh, where you need no entry ticket whatsoever you can just wander in so you can pop in for the whole day or just a couple of hours and the great thing is is not only do you get to see uh, various practice sessions and i think the odd qualifying session but you get access to the paddock and you can wander around uh the both the IndyCar paddock and and the other uh, support uh, series paddocks, um, and there's very little security or oversight. I mean, obviously there's some areas roped off, but we were able to get right up alongside the Indy cars as they lined up for first practice, and the uh, mechanics uh, that were were there were were pretty chilled um, and uh, didn't seem to mind as long as you didn't try to slide in behind the wheel and fire it up. So uh, so really tremendous. Uh, know accessibility from from the sport so full applause to uh indycar for that
0: yeah absolutely you know and just indycar in general is very different from formula one in terms of general access and availability even on the saturday and sunday uh, you'll be in a crowd of people and you'll see drivers scooter past you or go-kart past you because there's public areas to get through um, to get to the media center or to get to you know some specific team areas where they have to do team relations or whatever so um, you you see drivers all the time where in formula one that does seem a bit more cordoned off between where the fans are and where the drivers and teams are so that axis in in generally is easier in formula in indycar as opposed to formula one and then in detroit specifically just because of the layout the place and because you're on this island where everything is kind of enclosed and contained it's really easy to just navigate everywhere and get a good sense of where just what's happening and where the action is
1: yeah and it's you know it's a fairly compact track layout isn't it and everything is uh is down for sort of one end of the track anyway uh in that uh, paved paddock area so it, you know you can wander around very quickly between you know track side watching the cars on track or or going diving back into the paddock and and seeing who's around or what cars are dismantled or, or, you know, what's going on. So it's a really cool event. Enjoyed it very much.
0: So we talked a little bit about uh, the openness of Friday. There was some interesting things going on Friday there. Uh, Qualifying happened, and we saw, you know, IndyCar is a little bit different than Formula One. They have two groups, and from those two groups, you get something called the Fast 12. So the 12 quickest people go out for a third time, and from there you get the fast six. And from the fast six is where you get uh, pole position down through sixth place. And it that so it's, it's similar to Formula One qualifying, knockout qualifying, but not the same as. So I just wanted to give that quick clarification. But Sunday comes, the race starts, and there's another fascinating point about this. The way IndyCar works is they have a standard primary tire and an optional red sticker tire. Again, similar to Formula One, you have to use both compounds of tires in the race at least once. In Detroit, for um, an interesting combination of weather, the way rubber was working into the track, and uh, new payment or whatever, the sticker reds were having a hard time lasting very long at all. So they were the fastest tire to have on your race car for a little bit, but then they fell off and fell off pretty hard compared to the primary tires. They were saying, uh, Firestone was, that they were saying 1.1 to 1.5 nearly seconds a lap faster on the red tires, but then they didn't last very long. So that made tire strategy and pit stop strategy an important part of the race. And um, we quickly saw that different teams had different ideas in mind of what was the best strategy to handle having the sticker reds on and what to do about it
1: yeah absolutely we had both you know the order in which the tires were run and the number of stops so we had a few three stoppers we had uh, quite a few two stoppers we had some people starting on on the red or the alternate uh and then switching to the prime and some people starting on the prime and then switching to the red for the final stint uh so a real mix of uh a mixed bag of strategies there. And of course, I think most teams would have anticipated there'd be some caution flags because the nature of the track means there's a, there's a lot of uh, concrete to hit. And if you hit it, the likelihood is we need a, we need a caution. But there, were, there was only one, and it occurred actually on the final lap uh, when Venus VK crashed. So it didn't really influence the, the battle for the podium. So, you know, power... You could argue, and, and Team Penske got the strategy right, he, he went with the, uh, the prime, um, had a pit stop around uh, lap 26, switched uh, to another set of primes, and then only fitted the, the red wall for the last 20 laps. And, uh, and he made that work. I mean, he had, at some points, a gargantuan lead. And uh, I think he had over 16 seconds after Rossi made his final stop. Um, and that uh, dwindled down to one second, but that's all you need to win a motor race. In fact, you don't even need a whole second, do you? So it um, so worked very nicely <laughs> for, for Mr. Power, who bounced back from his woes of last year when, the, uh, when he was dominating the race, uh, only for his car not to fire up after a red flag uh, and uh, cruelly snatched it away from him. So vindication for him.
0: It, well, in, in, in fact, it, Will Power on the radio kept saying redemption Um, about exactly that as he crossed a checkered flag. But it was really fascinating because he had started the race 16th, but clearly had way more pace than his qualifying time suggested. And Alexander Rossi took a very different approach. He did a three-stop race, and he, I'm pretty sure, was one that started on the reds, got them off his car quickly. I mean, I think his first pit stop was within 10 laps. It was lap 10 4. Laps of the race. Lap 4. Lap 4. There yep. you go. And he was just on it. So his lap pace throughout the race was crazy, but he had an extra stop to make up for. And in the final 10 laps of the race, Rossi was gaining on Power at nearly I, I think it was a second a lap. Now, there was some variation here and there because of lap track, if traffic and things like that. But they ended up crossing the line not much more than a second apart from each other. And in fact, it was almost dead ringer a second apart from each other. And that was two wildly different uh, pitch strategies coming to the fold. But the fact of the matter is Will Power and Alexander Rossi were just quick. They were just the quickest guys there.
1: Yeah, I mean, considering that the whole field you know, could play with these, these different tire strategies and some emulated the, those same strategies... Uh, no one else was really very close were, were they, I mean Scott was seven seconds off power at the at the, uh, at the, at the checker flag um, he went with a, a prime red, prime uh, two stop strategy but uh, never seemed to be in the hunt for the win did he and so yeah those two they, they, uh, they, were, they were on it and uh, you know really good consistent high pace and they made their respective strategies work for them
0: and I we we need to talk a little bit more. I mean, so Joseph Newgarden he just he got the pole, but didn't seem to just he didn't quite have the race pace. He ended up finishing fourth behind Scott Dixon, and then we had Pato Award uh, fifth, Alex Palau, sixth, Marcus Erickson, the Indy 500 champion reigning um, seventh, Colton Herta finished eighth, and then Simon Pagenaud finished ninth, Felix Rosenquist tenth. But I want to talk a little bit about Simon Paginot and uh, Elio Neves. They started on the grid on the second row, third and fourth, uh, Paginot ahead of Neves, but passed to Kumisato early, and they were running 2-3 in the early part of the race. And Simon Paginot, in particular, was right on the tail of Joseph Dugard at the very beginning, had really strong pace, but... Um, Simon Pagnot ran into some minor fuel issues with the car and couldn't quite keep up. So a couple of niggling problems uh, kind of shifted his strategy a little bit and dropped him down the order. Elio Neves started having pretty major electric problems with his car, with his steering wheel. His steering wheel went dead so he could physically still turn the car left and right. But, uh, you know, not too dissimilar from a Formula One car. Steering wheel on an Indy car has a lot of data and information. And Castro Neves was just stopped working. And uh, they tried switching the steering wheel out. didn't work. Um, he ended up having to retire the car not much more than 20 laps in. So uh, although they started on the front, they couldn't
1: maintain it. Yeah, I thought it was pretty interesting. You know, the top three, we got Penske, Andretti, and then Ganassi in that order power, Rossi Dixon. Um, so you know the the big hitters in IndyCar finishing one two three, um, and then uh, you had uh, another Penske, followed by uh, one of the McLarens. Um, so an Arrow McLaren SP. I now know that I've got
0: that I've got that <laughs> drilled into my memory now. I, know, I now know the order.
1: So yeah, really really good battle. I, th- I thought it was one of the most interesting Bellar races I've seen in in a long time because they. They tend to be quite processional, and you don't have. Uh, although I guess last year there was a similar, there was a similar chase, wasn't there? Right at the death, so maybe it's not that unique. But it, to me, it seemed like a more compelling race this year than than I've seen in, in pr- previous years.
0: Part of what was so compelling about it was just as you were saying, you know, there was technically a yellow flag, but effectively not. I mean, it was a very fast-paced race. We just saw. <laughs> the green to checker, and it was just on it, and uh, the pace, the race pace was quite high.
1: Yep, that's right, and it puts the uh, the championship for the drivers in in a, in a pretty interesting place, isn't it? You got Power now leading with two hundred and fifty five points, just three ahead of Marcus Ericsson, who of course benefited from the double points at uh, at Indy for the five hundred. Um, and then you got Pato Award and Alex uh, Palau not far behind in on 243 and 241, respectively. So um, it's tight at the top in the championship.
0: Yeah, that's right. And Scott Dixon is not far behind. He's sixth. In the, so Joseph Newgarden is fifth. Scott Dixon is sixth. All of them have more than 200 points. and it's o- So it's only 53 points between Scott Dixon and sixth and Will Power in front with 255. And uh, the way points are scored in IndyCar is very different than Formula One. Everyone down the grid earns some level of points. It's just the amount and then the ratios and all that. Point is, point is about points. <laughs> that it's uh, it's a lot easier to make up ground in IndyCar than it is in Formula One.
1: That's very true, and the fact that they all race the same car with more or less even performance, <laughs> certainly amongst the top well, three teams. Three they do teams. all
0: race the same car, and it. but they do not all race the same engine. In fact, it was a Chevrolet 1, Honda 2 finish. And uh, I got to learn a little bit more about one of those two engines because I got a really great opportunity to get to meet and speak with Kelvin Fu, who is the vice president of Honda Performance Development. And we had a really nice conversation about how Honda engineers work with the IndyCar teams that run Honda engines, as well as the future IndyCar engine and the future IMSA prototype that's coming. So let me play that interview right now. Okay, I am inside of the HPD motorhome at the Detroit Grand Prix, and you are looking at Kelvin Fu, who is the vice president of HPD. He runs everything, as long as it's got a Honda badge on it. Kelvin, how are you? I'm
3: doing great. How are you doing?
0: Uh, I'm doing well. Very happy to be able to get the chance to talk with you. So you run, I think it's more than half of the IndyCar field today. Is that right?
3: Yeah, we should have about 15 cars out there.
0: Yeah, and that's out of 26. Yes. So uh, you're you're running more than half the field, and as I understand it, you have an engineer for each engine that's in the IndyCar field today.
3: Right. So... The, we, we have an engineer for each engine for each of the Honda cars. And then each of the teams, like the Ray Hall and Andretti, they have a team lead from Honda that helps kind of manage all of those different engines. And then we have more people on track here to kind of coordinate and review data. So we bring a lot of support to our teams when we come out to, to the races.
0: And that's true for every Grand Prix. That's not unique for Detroit.
3: That's true for every Grand Prix. Yeah.
0: Right. And what are those Honda engineers doing at the track, like what? What do they do? What is their weekend like?
3: So they meet with the drivers. They're responsible for making sure that our engines um, give out maximum power, and they're also responsible for making sure that the engine performs uh, the way the the drivers want them to perform and the teams want them to perform. So, you know, back at the factory, we'll make sure that we'll run our engines through our dyno and make sure that you know, given the weather conditions. Um, at the track on race day that, you know, here's kind of the band you want to operate in. But that, and then our engineers here kind of work with each team, and each driver, to make sure that our engines are exactly operating within that band. But they also talk to the drivers about, you know, how do we want the engine to perform for the driver, right? How about throttle tip-in, like, in terms of certain gear ratios, like, where do they want to run? Um, they don't like to, sometimes we'll help them with shifting, and then we work with the team to understand how our power plant, right, can can best be utilized to make the car fast based on what their strategy is.
0: Now, how do the engineers do that? Are, are you, do you have mechanics changing out hardware, or is this all software changes that you make to the engine calibration code?
3: It's mostly software changes to the engine calibration code. Okay. So there's uh, there are very few things that we can actually change on the engine, like during the race weekend. Uh, so, really, for for our engineers, it's really laptops going into the code and changing the ECU calibrations.
0: Got you, got you, got you. And you also, these are not, it's not like this is a Honda CVT transmission in the IndyCar. So, when you say you're playing with shifts and stuff like that, you're not doing anything to the transmission, but you're you can use software to affect the way the engine reacts exactly okay. exactly so
3: when we're shifting up how does the engine react and re-engage and sometimes we'll say oh this is really harsh we'll try to work within what we can control to help make those shifts smoother
0: okay and then when you say throttle tip in it's so funny to hear that because I know on road cars you know lots of cars will have a sport mode and you here I'll do it on camera sport mode, sport mode. air quotes. Um, and largely what those things do is it plays with the powertrain calibration and gives you a more aggressive throttle tip-in. So when you, say, apply 10% throttle, you're actually getting, you know, as much as 50% right. engine power. Um are you doing the same? Like, do the IndyCar drivers ask for sport mode?
3: It, it depends on their style, too, Or do right? they say sport plus because they're that oh, they're, extreme? They're, they always want the sport plus version, sure, right? They <laughs> no. always want the best, the, the, the secret sauce. But, you know, everybody gets gets the same calibration from us and the same amount of power. But, um, yeah, it really de- depends on the driver's style, right? And some drivers, if you look at some of the, some of their, their data, right, they're kind of up and down on the throttle. And some of them are very smooth in delivery. And that changes how they want the, the engine to respond to them, too. So... You know, it, it, it's our job to make the car as fast as they can to make them go around the track as fast as they can.
0: And I, I, th- I think this is even more important because IndyCar does not have any kind of driver aids, and I don't mean I mean nothing—no anti-lock brakes, no traction control, none of those things. So this is as close as they can get to traction control. Is how their throttle responds to their inputs.
3: Right. Uh, so that that's exactly right. right? It, it is like a very pure driving machine. There's not much computer interaction with them or interference. So, you know, it's up to their right foot and their head to figure out how that car is going to go around the corner and how to get all the power down. So... It's our engine and how it reacts to the driver, then also a lot of the secret sauces, you know, how the teams come in with their damper systems and control the, the, the car. So,
0: most secret sauces are some combination of ketchup and mayonnaise. Right. Is, is, this, is this similar? Is there mayonnaise involved with your
3: secret sauce? <laughs> I think there's a. Uh... There's probably a little bit of mayonnaise. Oh,
0: okay, all right. That's more than I would have guessed. So, you
3: know, we we, we try to do everything we can to maximize it, but I I think we bring some of it. I I really truly believe a lot of it is the team and the damper programs. I think a lot of that stuff is in car control and how you control the car with the arrow and how it comes around the corner with the rear controls and then get as much power to the the wheels a lot of that is up to the teams
0: and it does genuinely surprise me because my assumption was that it was all team engineers that you handed them a set of calibrations a set of tuning adjustments right. and said go have at it here are your parameters but it's actually engineers directly that do that work yeah
3: yeah i think i think um that's something we've been doing for a long time right and it's it's something we, we kind of pride ourselves on right we give the best service we can to the driver and the team to make that car go as, go as fast as possible. So they work really closely. Right? Sometimes, you know, the the drivers may not like, you know, what we can do within the box that we have, but, you know, it's the best we can do, and we'll do everything we can, and we'll, we'll take that feedback back and try to make it better next time.
0: And you've been doing that for a long time with this engine. I mean, this is a 2.2 liter V6, is that correct? Yes. And, and that's been in the series for, I think... Is it 10 years now?
3: Yeah, this is the 11th generation of that engine. Wow. Yeah, the same so, basic architecture.
0: New generation every
3: year. Yes.
0: Yeah, so and so you've had a lot of time to learn. I mean, that's as long as engines live in the production car yeah. world these days. There's been a lot of refining and things going on. I'm sure you guys have worked on increasing ultimate horsepower, but also increasing the drivability of that engine. How... how if you compared this eleventh generation version to Gen One, how how would you say it's different in terms of power and drivability? Are both better?
3: I would say it's a lot more power. It's a lot more power than I think even we expected it to be able to come out. If you talk to the engineers from Gen One and you told them what we're at now, I think their their minds would be blown, right? The amount of work that we put in uh, to get to where we are now is it's, it's it's incredible, right? And especially because and when we first developed it, you know, there's only there's certain things you can't change anymore. Like, it's locked in. And for us to kind of work around some of those restrictions and get to where we are, it's amazing. I think drivability, yeah, I think so, too. Like, we've gotten a lot smarter about, you know, how to make the it more drivable um, and how our software kicks in and helps control some of that. And, you know, as, as the years have gone, gone by, IndyCar's narrowed what we can change on the engine. So you kind of got to look at the edges, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Even the last few years, it's amazing like how we keep finding little bits of performance
0: yeah and it's you'd think after 11 years you'd be picking that picking at just the barest minimums anymore but you never know what little trick can be found i mean software is kind of incredible that way isn't it
3: it is and there's also mechanical stuff we've tried before too and you know there's always new technologies we're going to see right is that something we we can apply
0: even maybe perhaps i'm just guessing here maybe even processing power of the of the uh the computers themselves the modules themselves can improve.
3: So we we use a, a unit for McLaren that hasn't changed. A lot oh, that's years. that's
0: one of the fixed that's one
3: of the fixed things we use and that's something that that's uh, that's what helps IndyCar kind of like manage that we're not introducing too much yeah. into it, but yeah, I think I think it's still a really capable unit, right? And you know, we'll use as much as we can. And as go over the years, I think we've probably increased like our usage of it.
0: Right? Now, and and this is uh, this is as I understand it, there is actual different tuning requirements if you're on a super speedway or a road course slash street right. course. Um, is it the same core engine with different tuning characteristics applied?
3: Yes. Yeah. So um, street course here uses a 150 kPa boost. Uh, when we're at Indy for so that's
0: kilopascals. Right. That's the amount of turbo boost pressure you're allowed.
3: Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And at Indy, it's a 130 kPa for race trim and 150 for uh, for qual. So uh, like you know, so Qual is like four laps around, right? So you push that as hard as you can. But here you've got two hours of running at the same boost pressure. So yeah, there's different needs, and you know, and the, we work with the teams a lot on how do you you know maximize that for both for both situations.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now this this engine is slowly it is going to be sunset right. uh, eventually. There is another generation coming out and uh how much horsepower is that new engine going to make and how big is it and what are the exact details of it
3: uh a lot of horsepower that's all i can really say um i think indy i think indy cars said like a thousand horsepower total with the hybrid system i i'm not sure you know if we'll get there um but you know, it's something we—it's it's something we'll shoot for. I mean, uh, four digits are better than three. Exactly, you know, and you know, we—you know, the more the better, right? Um, so it's going to be a 2.4-liter uh, twin-turbocharged V6. So that's kind of the, the the spec that in, that we're designed to. And that's what the IndyCar uh, regulations for, let us do. Okay,
0: 2.4-liter twin-turbocharged, and it, the hybrid system is actually. That's not a Honda hybrid. That's an IndyCar hybrid yes. system.
3: It's an IndyCar spec hybrid system that uh, both uh, both the competitors have to use. So we'll have to use it, and um, the other side is going to have to use it too.
0: Yes, the the not to be named other side. Right,
3: The not to be named other side. But they
0: so. they like a certain kind of tie. Right. Um, the that's going to be a really fascinating because this is a hybrid system, which Formula One has been doing for years. Right. But there's also going to be a special fuel introduced. This is supposed to be a a lower carbon fuel.
3: Yeah, it's it's, it's really cool. I mean, uh, uh, we're already pretty low carbon because we're E85, right? We're 85% ethanol. But the partnership with Shell is instead of making it from, from corn, they're going to be able to make it from corn waste. Right, ah. So that's actually a lot better for the environment. And then the 15% that is uh, kind of gasoline, um, they're actually going to make it from, I think, also some kind of a, a, an oil waste, right? So... Both are not going to, so both are going to be kind of 100% carbon neutral or carbon. So, like overall, like we've been working with some national labs for years, working on like what is really carbon neutral. I think this is going to make a huge impact on you know, lowering the carbon footprint for IndyCar, and it's really, I think, I mean, the first in American motorsport, right, and yeah. one of the most innovative ones kind of worldwide.
0: Yeah, and that and that's really it's really fantastic to see IndyCar um, jump into this biofuel idea yeah. and. Figure out what's possible. And I'm curious, not asking for specifics here, but if you could talk about are there new challenges with tuning this engine on these different fuels? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm sure octane levels are different. As an example, well,
3: actually, they're they're pretty good. Okay, I mean, so they they've done a really good job. I mean, Shell's a you know they're a world class, right? They 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 can do a lot of. They're great at chemistry, which I'm, so th- I'm this really will bad be at. a
0: Shell fuel. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah,
3: it's yes. a, it's a Shell fuel, um, and it's worked. Developed a partnership with Shell, and and you know, like I think IndyCar and Penske's had a long relationship with them, and so so is Honda. Um, but yeah, so we have tested it. I mean. Both Chevy, we'll say, we'll say the bowtie guys, and, and us have um, have tested the fuel, right? And you know they've done a lot to try to match kind of the same chemical characteristics that was as what really we're doing fascinating. now. Yeah, so you know we, we'll run it next year, right? In these engines, which is really cool. And then you know when the new engine comes in in 24, we'll run it there too.
0: Well, that's all of that's just super yeah. fantastic
3: to see, and it, it
0: shows us a path forward in this carbon-focused right. new world to keep racing going in the 21st century and that means so much to me and indeed a lot of other people but IndyCar is not the only racing that HPD is heavily involved in we've had we've seen a lot of success with the ARX 05 the fifth generation Acura that started life as an Orica went to Penske spent some time there and is now with Wayne Taylor Racing and Myers Shank Racing still winning races doing very well the ar06 is coming and that's going to be an lmdh right. chassis car so going to be that new generation of top class imsa car that's super exciting i know it's early days but if there's anything you can tell us about that
3: so you know we we just released the teaser for what it looked like we've been working with i know, was teased yeah it, it, it was amazing um you know you know dave merrick who's our chief designer for acura was was here um at the race, and we've been working with him in the studio for, for a long time. And that's kind of got all of the, the next generation actor styling cues into it. Um, they've done a great job of of uh, making it look, you know, I've, I've seen it without the camouflage. i call it looks like the meaner older brother of the current ARX 5 <laughs> so I think it looks fantastic. Um, Hope it's not a bully, as long as it's not a bully. Well, as long as on the racetrack, it starts bullying all <laughs> okay. the other ones. That, okay. that, that, that's the gill. But, you know, it, we've had. The DPI, you know, we were kind of we start we started with the Orca 07, and which was a great car we developed from there. This one we were able to work with Orca kind of more as a clean sheet design. It's going to be the basis for you know their next LMP two, but you know we got to go in a little bit earlier and have some our input into it from a design perspective and, and some and when of the performance.
0: You say, you're talking about Orca. When yes. you say ah, okay. So
3: we've been working with Orca again on this one too. Got it. Got so it. So it, it, it. it's been it's been a great working relationship with them, but you know we've had a lot more time to really develop this car so i think it's going to come out it's going to look great i think it's going to get a great performer too
0: and uh i i know that powertrain is uh yet to be finalized and stuff like that but is it safe to say it's not going to be a
3: 3.6 liter v6 no i don't think it's safe to say that I oh think
0: man <laughs> is it safe to say that it will not be a chevrolet 3.6 liter think, i think i think that okay uh, Woo.
3: That, that's for a we got an exclusive all right but, um, but that also comes with a, a, a hybrid system, too. Yes, right? yes, So that's, yes, yes. that's going to be, and it's very different from what IndyCar does, so we get to kind of play on both sides of it, too.
0: Yeah. Well, so. Kelvin, thank you so much for these fantastic insights into the world of IndyCar and, indeed, IMSA and, really, World Endurance Championship Racing. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks a lot. I really loved that conversation with Kelvin. It was so interesting to get a little bit more insight into kind of the intricacies of how uh, the different teams work with the engine manufacturer and so that was super fascinating i hope you agree okay chris is there anything more to talk about this detroit weekend
1: i guess there was some news that dropped regarding uh, driver switches for 2023 so it was announced that That's alexander right. alexander rossi will be joining arrow mclaren sp for multiple seasons starting in 23 um and at, um, Arrow McLaren SP will be expanding to a three-car team as well, so we're not sure uh, what that means for, for uh, Felix Rosenquist, uh, whether he will be staying and will be joining his new teammate Rossi and of course uh, Pato Award in the in the three-car McLarens. Uh, that's not yet clear, but but some big news there for McLaren expansion and uh, you know a very a talented American racer joining the lineup there.
0: And uh, Pat Award recently, you know, with talking with him, he was talking about just how much that team has grown and expanded in the short time that uh, Aaron McLaren has become more and more a part of it. And, or I should just say McLaren, McLaren Racing has become more a part of it. And uh, so them expanding to a three-car team is logical. Um, It's a logical extension of that. I mean, you know, the big teams are big budgets, but also literally big, so... Uh, it, it's interesting to see how McLaren wants to become one of those big teams. I guess we already know who's going to replace Rossi at Andretti Autosport as well.
1: Yeah, that's right. Kyle Kirkwood, um, who raced uh, at uh, Detroit for AJ Foyt, uh, will be switching over to Andretti Autosport for next season. So he is um, he's a, he's a very talented driver that's come out of Indy Lights from from last season and seems to be uh, adapting well to life um, at the bigger bigger cars for this year.
0: Yeah, that's great news because he is definitely, he's a strong young talent. So what do we have coming up? We have a lot. So in just a few days time, I'm going to put together another episode about the Detroit IMSA race. But then Formula One is going to be racing in Azerbaijan this coming weekend, June 10th through the 12th. IndyCar is also racing this coming weekend. They are going to Wisconsin to the Road America track, which is fantastic. And we've got a few weeks until IMSA races again. It's the six hours at the Glen on June 26th. But there is also one other tiny little race going on this weekend. Yes, that is the 24 hours of Le Mans. In fact, a lot of the IMSA drivers raced in Detroit on Saturday, went to Detroit Airport that night, and flew to Paris, I happen to know. So, yeah, uh, that race is coming up, too, and that's going to be exciting. So next week's podcast will not be a boring one. But, as always, that was just a warm-up to my latest YouTube videos. And wouldn't you know it, the YouTube videos are kind of an extension (laughs) of what we were just talking about. I put together six videos um, during the Detroit Grand Prix weekend, and most of them were interviews, but it also included... A really fantastic walk around of the uh, Wayne Taylor Racing DPI car. So they had a, a big chunk of the bodywork off, and full time driver Philippe Albuquerque walked around, took a microphone, walked around with me, and showed me details of the car. We talked about brakes, we talked about the suspension, and he showed a lot of different details of what the cockpit of the ARX 05 is like. Super, super fantastic and interesting video. I really appreciated Philippe taking the time to do that with me. So I definitely encourage you to check that out. But for now, I want to thank you for listening. Please take a moment to review us on iTunes or on whatever platform you get our podcasts Please leave comments on the episode of your choice by going to funwithcars.com. As always, I can be reached at feedback at funwithcars.com. Tweet us at fun underscore with underscore cars. And check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash fwcars. And please, please, please do take a moment to check out those ads, those promo codes, all that kind of stuff. If you do, that would help me out tremendously. And you know who helps me out tremendously all the time? Christopher Roche. Chris, thank you again for talking.
1: Thank you, Robin.
0: I'm Robin Warner. Goodbye.